I have a rather special guest for you today. Here's what some of his clients say about him. Carlos did more for me than just coach me. He supported me every step of the way. I'm a much better salesperson and leader thanks to his guidance. Here's another one. Carlos is one of the business world's truly incredible sales training strategists. Every session I'm armed with incredible strategies to implement in my daily routine. My organization has been working with Carlos for over a year and I couldn't be happier with the results. Here's another one. As an owner in a business, one goes through many iterations of sales training over the years. We have never found a program that worked, certainly where the senior sales staff stayed engaged for longer than a couple of months until we found Carlos. Carlos Guido, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Paul. I have no idea where you got those from, but I'd like to meet I, those clients. I got them on your LinkedIn yeah and there's a lot more in that vein i just took a, a small section of them people should check yeah, them out thank you that's very nice and, thank uh, you ni nice to wake up to those and take a look at them every now and again but uh carlos i know you're in miami but your Correct. accent's not it's certainly east miami that's where i'm putting it no no can you tell can, can you tell us where you grew up and a little bit about that yeah sure it's a beautiful in many ways, a great pattern interrupt, especially in Miami, and especially with the name Carlos Garrido, because mm. Carlos Garrido could be a Miami name. And a lot of people are certainly, it takes them off their off their pattern when I start to speak to them, because they're not expecting a, a North, they're not expecting a British accent, and certainly not one from North of the Wall, right? For those mm. uh, Game of Thrones fans out there, winter is coming. I'm from North of the Wall, from Manchester, and I grew up in Manchester in the UK. I spent most of my life there, Paul. And the story as to how I got to Miami is a is is a tale of of intrigue. <laughs> Happy to share how I got Please. to Miami, but it's uh, there's some method in the madness. Please do share. How did I end up working in Miami? I was um, so I have I have an investment banking background. And I was many years in in investment banking, doing M and A and business development for clients. I had a, a sort of a client service background, and I was invited to join in the world of investment banking. For those people who don't know, there are outside investment banking teams that work for clients, and then big corporates have inside investment banking teams that are working from the from inside an in-house investment banking function and obviously that's normally a much bigger company that has it inside like a treasury it. function very like a treasury function what you mean the investment banking no investment yeah, banking an organization. More, no an inside investment banking function is more an inside m a team a deal team mm doing mergers and acquisitions. It does, in fact, have some treasury, but in, but it's more stock bonds versus equity, some really crazy kind of Black Shoals formula kind of stuff. So if you're a big company like an Oracle, for example, or an IBM, and you're regularly buying companies... There'd be a guy on the inside. Got it. But they'd usually be a guy on the outside too. There would usually be, mm. for someone like Oracle... They're usually working with a Goldman Sachs or a Deutsche Bank or one of those guys or a team. But on the inside, there's a team doing internal negotiations, internal acquisition hunts. 
And some deals will be done exclusively by the inside team. Some deals combined with outside teams. Mm. So I got invited to join a big company inside M&A team. And I did that. Had a great time working on acquisitions, disposals, spin outs, you name it. And, and this was in around 2008. You'll remember in 2008, every big company owed its shareholders a BRIC strategy. Do you remember BRIC? Brazil, the Russia, Brazil, India, yeah, China. Yeah. It was yeah. the emerging market strategy because everyone went running the hair on fire saying there's all this yeah. emerging middle class and my yeah. shareholders need their share of the emerging middle class. Yeah. Wasn't so, the R in that Russia? The R was Russia. The B How times was Brazil. have changed. Yeah, that was changed. And then there was Brazil, there was Mexico, there was... So anyway, the company I worked for took their internal deal team and they handpicked three guys. One guy went to go and do Asia deals for the emerging middle class. The One guy went did Eastern European deals. That was... Who did Asia? Shridhar went to do Asia. And the CEO of the company called me up and said, hey, we want you to run the Latin American deals, mm. specifically Mexico and all the, there's a nice Latin American portfolio because you speak Spanish. And I was just, the words were about to leave my lips. <laughs> oh, I don't speak Spanish. When he said, unfortunately, we're going to need you to move to Miami. And I <laughs> thought, Miami? I could learn Spanish. Habla yeah. <laughs> so español. Yeah. So I went up to Claro Kissy, <laughs> which is Spanish for, of course, yes. Of course, I'll do that for you, David. Miami. And that's how I ended up in Miami. And he just assumed because of your last name that you spoke Spanish, presumably. Yeah, you know, Brits. Yeah. <laughs> that's, Speaking uh, of that's kind of, and hey, it's listen, it was interesting because for sure the, the company I worked with had very long roots, British roots, mm. like 200, 300 years. And this and their HR policies, right? Their policies for how to move executives overseas were basically written in the colonial era, right? So they were written to, honestly, I was like a diplomat. It was like, it's like the, like a Ferrero Rocher advert. Yeah. They didn't yeah. know that I grew up on a working class estate in North Manchester. They just saw, uh, so my, my uh, packing and the way you treated as a, as an expat mm. in this company that it's not a modern company, modern companies say, Hey, do you, can you go and live in this country for us we'll buy you a plane ticket and that's it no my, yeah. the policies in this company were written in the 1700s this was yeah. like as if you were going on a steamship with a staff it was a fabulous experience yeah actually my wife's father was working in the guinness brewery and they moved him to ghana in africa for six years and it's the same thing hearing about staff having staff in the house the expat lifestyle was Something from a movie. Oh, ridiculous. Ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. I, had, I, had, I couldn't tell you I'd t all the stuff that I had. And I am legitimately grew up in a council house. No, it wasn't a council house, in fairness. If my dad was to ever see this, he would be upset. It wasn't a council house. But it was a very working class neighborhood. I want to yeah. talk to you a little in bit. In fact, about actually, that. have you ever watched Shameless in England? No. Shameless. There's an American version of Shameless and there's an English version okay. of Shameless. Okay. And it's basically, it's a working class. It's a comic comedy. 
Yeah. Where I was from was where Shameless was filmed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm familiar with that you know, the part of English, the red brick houses, the coronation streets and so on. That's it. That's yeah. it. What was that? I'm curious to know what that was like. People might be familiar with the Manchester from the 90s, for example, Britpop and the band yeah. that came from Manchester. But Manchester has this almost avant-garde vibe about it in the UK. It's very different from London. Uh, I'm curious to know how it's shaped you, how you are today. What part of that growing up in Manchester has made you who you are? I think it's also relevant, Paul, that, I, that we, we were an immigrant family. You know my brother Antonio well, who's my business partner. We were an immigrant. Dad, dad came to England as 27 years old as a waiter um, mm. with no English. Mum was a refugee at six years old out of Greece to Manchester. There were a lot of Greeks that came to Manchester after the war because mm. Brits liberated Greece from the German, from Nazi occupation. Mm. And, and there were some reason that there was a fondness that the Greeks held for the, for the British because of mm. that. And also the royalty, there was a royal connection with Prince Greece. Philip was Greek, wasn't he? Chris, yeah, Phil the Greek. That's right. Prince mm. Philip was Greek. And uh, the Greek. that sounds like a character from the East End of London. <laughs> Phil the Greek, yeah. Don't you think it should be a Viz character, actually? Phil should the be, Greek. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Mum was an immigrant, and we grew up with nothing, Paul, nothing, but a lot of love. Could never. I, it's interesting. I did a, a leadership retreat about two or three weeks ago with guys that you know, Tom Neeson. Eric Dunn, Carl Graff, guys from our world. And we opened it with, tell the team about what, what hardships in your youth you had to overcome. And I had nothing to say. I honestly legitimately had nothing to say. What, I mean, I, had, I wouldn't change a thing about it. We had nothing. But we, and it was like a bit of a, it was like a scene from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. There was like five in a room. But... It wasn't a Dickensian scene. We weren't all working in the workhouse. It was, I had a ton of love. I had a ton of friends. I got a great education, a fabulous education, state education. Wouldn't complain about a moment of it. And, and it's interesting, to, on next week, Tuesday, I drive to the airport here in Miami to pick up my two best buddies, who are coming to visit me. They've been my best buddies since I was five years old in primary school. It's, I wouldn't change a moment of it. It was poor, but it was rich in yeah, so many ways. You had ways. nothing, but you had everything. Absolutely. Mm. And I know, we both know people who grew up with everything, but really empty. So I, I wouldn't, isn't a tale of woe. It's very much, for if anybody who's English is watching this, it's Coronation Street out of the 60s. I grew yeah. up in Coronation Street in the 60s. I grew up in, the, there was a pub and there was a snug and there was a, mm -hmm. we all knew an Eenie Sharples and we all knew a, the corner shop. That was my, that's how I grew up and I wouldn't change a moment of it. All right. In was, fact, yeah. Interestingly, my dad used to run a restaurant right next to where they filmed Granada Studios, filmed Coronation Street. So he was best buddies with all the cast and the writer, Bill Podmore, the producer, and all those writers and stuff. So sometimes they'd be around at the house. It's a funny thing because I was reading only just today, there's a, a group, a support group, and I think it's specifically for men, 
but it's for, and this is the title of the group, so it's a support group for privileged men. And they're basically, the theme of it is th that their privilege almost destroyed them. That they grew up with expectations that they couldn't fulfill. They grew up stilted without the relationships. Many of them sent off to boarding schools, crying themselves to sleep every night. An expectation that they were going to go into a certain business, that they had to behave in a particular way. And now as adults, they're coming and going, this is not who I am. But they have a lot to unravel. And yeah. it's interesting you say that sometimes the more you give, the more you take. And I think we're all waking up to this, that, that an understanding of where happiness comes from. And it certainly doesn't come from things. No, there's a fabulous book that I recently read. Have you read The Almanac of Naval Ravikant? No, it's, tell me. Oh, my goodness. Spectacularly good. It's the guy who founded Angel List in Silicon Valley in, in, in San Francisco. He's one of those barefooted billionaires that, mm. that the world seems to be sprouting at the moment. And so stoic, so introspective. And there's a big part of me, that Manchester upbringing, there's a big part of me saying it's, you can be stoic and introspective when you're not worried about paying the gas bill, right? There's a big voice in my head. Mum used to say to us, love goes out the window when the bills come through. The but So I have to quiet that voice that says, of course, he's got so much money that he can be stoical. If I can quiet that voice for long enough and actually just appreciate the stoicism, it's a very good read. And what's interesting, because he's a tech kind of billionaire, this guy, mm. the book is essentially a Twitter feed. It, it, he's built it from Twitter feed, from his own Twitter account, his own Twitter feeds. He's built this, and it's a very easy to read book, as you can imagine, built from Twitters, right? It's a very easy to read book, but it's very, it's very stoic, kind of Buddhist, mm. ferocious Buddha type message. Really quite cool. I like that stuff, Paul. I read Jay Shetty and I read the Keith Cunningham and the, yeah. I come, I've discovered what is my business philosophy. And I discovered it very late in life. Your viewers and listeners are going to be surprised when I tell you I'm 51 years old. They're going to write you text messages, Paul. They're going to say, that guy can't be 51 years old. How did that young guy, how can he be 50? But I am 51 <laughs> years old. And it took me probably 45 years to discover that I was cooler than I thought I was, right? That, that, that was the business philosophy that I was searching for, that ferocious Buddha. It isn't in conflict with my working class roots, but perhaps more enhanced by my working class roots. Because I also know people need to pay the bills. How important are your roots in your own story, your life story? I would imagine as important, only as important as anybody else's is, but maybe other, maybe most people don't recognize how important it is, because I think it's everything. I just. I see a Coronation Street scene in almost everything. I, so yes, hugely important. And I think it is also important, especially when we do what we do, Paul, because you and I are rubbing shoulders with the great and the good in many ways of the world, right? We're talking to people with some of them a fabulous wealth, some of them without fabulous wealth, but they're earning 200 grand a year. I'm feeling shortchanged. And I love the fact that I look at 200 grand a year and somebody who's feeling shortchanged and it, there's a shocker reality. That's a shitload of money, 200 grand a year. 
And my Sandler business has been extremely kind to me economically, very kind. And my investment banking career was extremely kind to me economically. But I will never look at 200 grand like it's not a lot of money. That's a lot of money. And when I'm teach training salespeople, I don't expect them to be earning three, four, five hundred grand. I expect them to want it, mm. but I don't expect them to be there already. And I know what it was like to worry about paying the gas bill. You said something a few moments ago, and I wondered, but I may have misunderstood it. It was in the context of this almanac book. You were the author of this book who obviously had a lot of money, wealth on a different scale, and sounded like there was, now for, forgive this, right? I don't, it's not, you know what I'm saying. It's, it sounded like inside there, there was a recognized chip almost that you had. Again, could have completely misinterpreted. It was just something you said about it. And I'm just wondering, because I would recognize that too. It's almost, it's for you. You grew up with wealth or you had this. I had to do it the hard way. And I wondered sometimes if we don't recognize when you come from nothing, that's actually can be the greatest privilege of all. Well, I want to unbundle a couple yeah. of those things. So number one, did you hear a chip? I don't think so, because actually my understanding of Naval Ravikant is actually he came from nothing too. Okay, what, okay. I, what, I, that's what I, I wasn't sure. I wasn't yeah. sure. No, not at all. What I... That what I did a bad job of explaining was that as I'm reading this ferocious Buddha stoicism, I have this working class voice in my head that when he's giving advice, don't do stuff for the money or whatever, some sage advice. That's, that's easy for a billionaire to say. That's the yeah, yeah, working yeah. class voice in my head. That No, that, that makes sense. There. Sorry, I misunderstood yeah. that, Carlos. Yeah, but that makes sense. But yeah. that's okay too, because that's just a filter. Oh, absolutely. And also to get real value out of guys like that, I have to quieten that voice. Because if you let that, in my case, if I let that voice get too loud, then I'm gonna, then it's gonna be an ego exercise and I'm not mm. gonna see the wisdom in the message. Yeah. I'm yeah, gonna discount the wisdom in the message and then that doesn't help me. All it does is make me feel better about myself. Okay. Right, it'll feed my ego, but it doesn't feed my family. However, to go back to the second point that you make, I 100% agree that it's an advantage for me in terms of my ambition and drive, if nothing else, mm. to have come from, do you know, there was like, a, it was almost like a miracle timing for me. I actually feel sorry for people who have been born in a different time. Think, if you think about my timeline, Born very early 70s. So, you know, what? So what's in that timeline? Very early 70s, pre-computers, pre-internet, pre-mobile phones. It's, do you remember the TV show, Men of... I was like Sweeney time, right? Sweeney, the flying squad. That was when I was born, those times. But do you remember what was that show, Men of Mars, Life on Mars, where some that policeman finds himself at the, in the 70s in, in Manchester... I wasn't born until the 80s, so I don't yeah. really know. These are old, okay. old references for me. Sure. So early 70s, then like 
five, six years old. I remember the summer of that crazy summer that England had where the roads were melting. There was like a ridiculous summer that England had. I remember being out on the street with my buddies with the road melting legitimately like we would push lolly sticks into the tarmac yeah. and it would string up. Crows falling then... out of the sky. Pardon? Crows falling out of the sky. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah, like a biblical scene. And then the 80s come along. We had timed the 80s. Dallas and mm. everybody's making money. Everybody's making money if you're wired that way. Mm. And Thatcherism and all that difficulty. But there was a period there, Sade Diamond Life period. Yes. That, that sort of, there was a time of extraordinary excess where the people had mobile phones that were like a brick that they'd carry around with them. And everybody was a broker in a big suit with big shoulder pad jackets. Yeah. And That's when I moved to the UK. Dallas, right? Da let's mm. not underestimate the impact of Dallas. Mm. Ridiculous. If you remember, it was like every Terry Wogan show was nothing. And everybody listened to Terry Wogan in the morning, right? Everybody. Yeah. Radio 2 in the morning. And then and every episode was just about Dallas. And Who, who shot JR? Did you have that? Who shot UK JR? Well? Right. Yeah. Who shot yeah. JR and what was Miss yeah. Ellie doing? And so and my dad at that time, who'd been a waiter and then was managing a restaurant, that was when he opened his own restaurant. So now we had a family business mm. cooking away mm. as well. And, and we, true story, we moved in with my grandma. We sold the house. Moved in with, now that was a scene from Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. We moved in with my grandma, with my yaya. And for what was supposed to be six months, became seven years in a very, in a house that was way too small for six people. And wow, I wouldn't change a minute of it. Not a minute of it. And then out of that, and then the business did well, the restaurant did well. And after seven years, we, then we very much arrived as lower middle class in the late 80s, early 90s. But there's something about that 80s drive, ambition, you can achieve anything, you should get some money. It was all about the money 80s. And that has had a huge impact on me. Huge impact. And, it, and not all of them good impacts, by the way, because I work 80 hours a week. I always have and I still do. And that ain't cool to be wired like that. Honestly, I'm exhausted a lot of the time. My work-life balance is completely out. It impacts my health. I get that. And I think it comes out of 80s, that 80s mentality that I was wired with, which was you work hard and you make a ton of money and that's what we're about. And then you provide for your family. Can I ask you a personal question on that? You certainly can. You recognize that it's not good for you. Have you gotten help with it? <laughs> no, but my wife... My wife, with increasing regularity, because we're from England. My wife grew up in America. My wife's Colombian, but grew up in America. They, Americans do therapy in a way that British people don't do therapy. Mm. So my wife has, with increasing frequency, is calling for me to, to get some therapeutic help for it. And, and then here's the classic answer. I'm trying to figure out how to find time. <laughs> Rich in irony. Yeah. Try to find time for that. Yeah. Now, if that was one of your clients, Carlos, and they said they didn't have time, what would you say to them? 
I'd say in the same way I don't have time to go to the gym, but I never fail to have time to find myself in a bakery. Uh, It's not a matter of time. It's a matter of priority. That's what I would say to a client. Physician, heal thyself. Yeah. I can highly, re- by the way, I start again, I grew up in, I'm only a few years older than you, so I have that same baggage, particularly being a man from a certain era. I started talking to a therapist counselor two years ago to deal with some stuff, and I found it exceedingly helpful. Do you remember Carl, what was Carl called from our network who sadly passed away? Oh, Carl, not Carl, Carl Scheibel. Oh, Scheibel. He mm. gave a talk about the therapist that he started seeing. Mm. And, he, and that was also, that resonates with me. Yeah, yeah. It's a journey, Paul. I'm on the journey. I know yeah, that's yeah, something no, I that I need. I, I know, know that's we, something that would be valid. Need's the wrong word. I would hate to need a therapist. I think the way I'm thinking about it right now is that's hugely valuable. Yeah, it's that beneficial. Be you don't valuable. need it. It's beneficial. Yeah. yeah. Because it's actually, you watch Bill Burr much. I don't know if you're a fan or not. From Boston, Com- Bill Burr. Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. He's probably one of my favorite comics. Great. He does one this, uh, me too. And he, I saw this short on YouTube recently. <laughs> and it's brilliant because he's, uh, he saw his white, he, you know, his background causes him to get angry and fire up really quickly. In a Bostonian and way. Yes. And his wife says, I don't understand it. <laughs> As you, could, yeah. you can hear Bill doing his wife. Yeah. <laughs> I don't understand it. She says, you go from zero to a hundred. I don't know where that comes from. And he goes, you got to understand. He says, I don't under-, I, he says, I don't understand the zero to a hundred. You got to understand. He says, I idle at 70. <laughs> he says, I'm walking into the restaurant, a restaurant and I'm going, and I can hear that guy on his phone from the parking lot like he's already fired up i get that too then he says to her he says i'm insulted as well he says because it tells me she's not listening to me he says how many times honey do i have to tell you about the stories from my childhood for you to follow the breadcrumbs (laughs) it's just and and, and he's just brilliant about it but it it was actually okay it's funny but what struck me was this sense of idling that our backgrounds where we come from give us a sort of a subconscious energy, some of it positive, some of it negative. And the role of talking these things out with people is that, for me anyway, this is the way I internalize it, it brings the idle speed down. Doesn't mean you won't, you don't have the capacity to get angry or work hard or the outlet is, but it's the idling speed. It brings a sense of calm to it. Anyway, sorry, I, I don't know why I went down that avenue. I just think, do you know what, though? Do, I would be concerned because uh, the 80 hours, that's a hell of a lot. That's, yeah, we'd hate to lose you. No, but listen, Paul, it's been, it's been like that for 30 years. And actually, I actually I went to the docks a couple of weeks ago, sent by my wife, of course, because British men don't go to the doctors unless, like, which, what's that about? Yeah. So I was sent by my wife to this concierge doctor that she has. <laughs> it's like... What? <laughs> anyway, so I went to this concierge doctor. What the fuck? And because I just, I was like, I fell over. I was just like, and it happened twice. I was just like, my body just went, no, lie down. I didn't fall over like a sack of, but I just thought I need to lie down. And in the middle of the day, walking along, I just lay down on the floor. And, and so I was sent to the doctor and he said, what's wrong? And I said, well, I just lay down. <laughs> I felt stupid. <laughs> Say, well, I just laid down, doctor, in the full knowledge that if this was a British doctor, he'd say, I've got an idea. Don't lie down. 
<laughs> but but anyway, so now he's testing my adrenals because we've come to the conclusion that 30 years idling at 70 is probably not good for my cortisol levels, right? And we're trying to figure that out. And you're right. Yeah, you're right. But I also know that there's part of my, one of my superpowers is my extraordinary drive. And hey, listen, I get up at five five o'clock in the morning and I get out of bed like a spring lamb. Honestly, you've never, I jump out of bed mm. full of energy. But by 6 p.m., I am done. Like the batteries have fallen out. I'm like the Duracell yeah. bunny that the batteries have just come out of. And, and so it isn't cool, but I'm nervous about letting that go. That is a part of my personality. Mm. which has been extremely valuable over a career. Like I can pin millions of dollars of personal income to that. And remember the, the Dallas 80s mindset, diamond life, right? Sade. Mm. I can pill, pin a lot of money to that instinct in me. Yeah. And I, I don't know, know if I'm that keen to let that go. No, no, because, because I ain't have a fabulous, have a fabulous funeral with it. It'll be wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> it'll yeah. be a brass band that'll be, yeah, be great everybody. <laughs> think about it it's yeah yeah <laughs> anyway i want to ask you another question move it on a little bit who inspires you these days joe it's interesting so uh, having read antonio's new book right i've started doing a lot of his journaling practices that he's talked mm. about and one of my journaling practices is i write down every day what inspired me today so i've got this like growing list of inspirations but generally who inspires me are you looking for a type of person or an individual no. or both actually we'll do both i was thinking of an individual who inspires you but then i will be asking you what is it about them that inspires you so yeah you just take whichever way you want so okay so individuals that inspire me are i read a lot of history Right. So I read. So historical figures inspire me, even though the honest truth of those people don't typically doesn't read well in a modern context. But but I can see through that. So some historical figures inspire me. I do read a lot of history. I do a lot of reading, actually. So certain certain big thinkers inspire me, though. What I really get inspired by those Renaissance men, those polyglots, not polyglot, polymaths. You know, people like Stephen Fry. Oh, yes. Peter Ustinov. You know, Peter yeah. Ustinov. Yes. Those polymaths. Chris Hitchin. Who can speak about anything and blow mm. your mind, right? Mm. You remember that? Have you ever had those dinner party questions where you said, if you could go and have a dinner, sit, have dinner with anybody? Yes. Anybody, who would you go and have dinner with? For me, it's easy. Stephen Fry. Stephen yeah. Fry would be a night of dinner that would just, that it would sizzle. Yeah. He'd be bored, but I would just, that the memory would sizzle in yeah. me. But so those polymath inspire me greatly. And then which are the ones? Because what we do, we do mm. like inspirational stuff and sales stuff. I'm a huge fan of Jim Ron. If, of mm. all of the people, well, of all of the people outside of our Sandler world, Jim Ron is probably the one that inspires me the most. It's what a it's it heavy religion for me. It's a too heavy a religious message often, but I'm real comfortable seeing through that and seeing yes. the human message because most religious messages 
are essentially human messages, right? So to see through to the humanity is just brilliant. So Jim Ron is my sales and personal development flavor of choice. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Who's yours, Paul? I would say in today, Jordan Peterson. I like, he's a polymath. He's one of those guys. And I'll tell you what's interesting. Have you ever seen the debate, him and Stephen Fry? Yes. Because they are both, they are politically, socially opposites. Yes. And yet they manage to communicate with Mm. great respect for one another and greatly appreciative of the other person's, not only their view, but their intellect and their their, their lens on the world. I do like Jordan Peterson. I'm not, I don't share his politics, but I do share his clarity and his wisdom. Mm. I, I do, I, I appreciate his clarity and wisdom. I think he's a hugely smart guy. And actually, I think most of the stuff he says is, nearly everything he says is right. Mm. I think maybe those messages have been hijacked, though. They have. I was going to say that there's been a lot of that because I've seen him being asked questions and he'll say, but I never said that. And there, this is what was happening. And you're going, yeah, he's right. He's right. very precise and very clear in what he says. And he's very yeah. thoughtful. Uh, yeah. Another one is Brett Weinstein. Oh, I don't know that name. Uh, oh, Brett and his wife, Heather Haling, they're both evolutionary biologists and they have this podcast, Dark Horse podcast, and it's fabulous because they look at everything through an evolutionary lens. Is it uh, a bit like Sapiens? Is it that like Sapiens message? I don't, what's that message? Because um, I know they wrote a book recently about humankind, so I don't know if that's the same thing. As no, I'm it's asking. different. Sapiens was all... God, I can't remember. It's brilliant book, Sapiens. Mm. But it, it looks at modern life through a history of, of humanity going right. back to Neanderthals and pre-Neanderthals and how societies evolved. Yeah, there's a lot Very of that. So they, so they like to ex- try to explain a lot of what's happening in the world through the lens, an evolutionary lens, which is always an interesting perspective to take. Love that. Because it, it Love cuts, that. cuts away all the political bullshit, right? Yeah. It, it gives you some insight and context for a lot of things. There's a Trigonometry is a podcast, two guys in the UK. They're very good. One of them is actually Russian and Constant, I can't think of his surname, but he has some fabulous insights on what's happening in between Ukraine and Russia as well. But I just like his thinking. Now, again, it's more of a working person. When I say working person, let me see what I mean by that. It's a dumbed down version of, say, Peterson or Weinstein, yeah. but very insightful. So they clown around a lot, the two of them. But yeah. then when they get serious, you can see there's incredible depth to, to them and very skilled, particularly. The That's what I They're like. stand up comedians. But I like that he- lighthearted heavyweight yeah. message. Bill Burr's a bit like that. And I also, I, I had a client once called, I think the way Russian people think is fantastic. I had a client called Alex, we called him Alex the Russian. And he had a business over here. Phil the Greek and, and a, Alex the Russian. I'm seeing a pattern here. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's right. Alex the Russian. He was so cool. And he once said to me, because we were talking sort of politics, and this was, I'm going back maybe eight years. It wasn't, Russia wasn't quite the, quite the same as Russia is today. And, but he did move out of St. Petersburg to Miami and not the 
Florida St. Petersburg, the Russian St. Petersburg. And he built his business over in Miami and I was helping his team and we were talking about the differences between Russians and Americans because he was trying to wrap his mind around how they do business in America. And he said to me this, which I thought was fabulous. He said, Carlos, there's a big difference between Russia and America. And I said, yeah, I can believe you're right. He said, Russian people individually are geniuses, but put them together and they're idiots. He said, now, Americans, individually idiots, put them together, geniuses. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? And the funny thing about that, there's an element of truth in that. That's, yeah. Yeah, and the French are like that, in, but they're different as in individually, they're the nicest people on the planet. But collectively. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, we'll say yeah. no more on that. I, yeah, listen, right. I, for, to you, all you my just, French friends, you just lost 20,000 20, viewers or... No, or... they'll understand because all I have to do to explain that little bit of bias is Thierry Henry and yes. what he did to... They go, yeah, fine. We Got it. Get it. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. I was going to ask you, tell me, a place on the planet that you've not been to that you'd love to visit? Easy. Boy. Easy. And it's connected to the first question you asked. Mm. I grew up on my grandmother's knee watching Hawaii Five-0, which was one of those. There were a number of shows that were big when I was a kid in England yeah. that came over from America. There was Kojak, Streets of San Francisco, Rockford Dallas, the, the Waltons. Which one mm. did you say? Rockford Files was another that, one. That era, and the yeah. one that I used to sit and watch on my yaya's knee was Hawaii Five-0. Yeah. So I've always, and I used to say, even then, five years old, I want to go to Hawaii. Now, I can afford to go to Hawaii. Mm. But I have every year on in, when I set my goals for the next year, I've done this for the past five years, I've put a revenue goal in that if I hit that revenue goal, my reward is Hawaii. And it's a very stretch goal. And I haven't yet hit it. And I'm not going to cheapen it by getting there. I'm not going to let myself off the hook. You see what I mean about how weirdly I'm wired? I'm not going to let myself off the hook and just go to Hawaii. I need to earn it. Why and not go just because you deserve it and you've worked hard? Because I'm not wired like a normal person, Paul. That is something that I've parceled away. I've parceled that away as, a, as something that I've got to do something big for. And I, you know, and I'm told by people that Hawaii ain't that special, by the way. <laughs> um, I know but, you have to go. I, but I, that, I, is the, that yeah. has been with me for 46 years. I am yeah. going to do something special to earn it. I was like that with Key West. Always, I don't know why. And I was just fascinated. And then, of course, Key West was the ultimate goal. But I also had Kilargo and just, I think, the songs from the 80s, 70s. Yeah. Bertie Higgins. Was, and so it must be eight years ago now at this stage, I booked Key West. I was going to be over at one of the conferences. And all my the family, three kids, wife, were, were going to be there. And booked into this hotel in Key West. Now, we were having a bit of tour around Florida as well. My brother lives in Fort Myers, so we started okay. there and headed down. He stayed safe, right, when the hurricane came, because it nailed Fort Myers, that Hurricane Ian. He, yeah, he was okay. He has yeah. a few trees down he is in his yeah. garden, but other than that, he's okay. okay. Power was out for a few days, but I yeah. can't believe, what an idiot. He didn't have a backup. He didn't have any generator in his house. I don't understand that when you live in 
Oregon Territory. But anyway, yeah. that's a, besides the point. Booked this hotel, two rooms. And then I thought about it. My daughter at the time was maybe 15, and I thought, nah, she doesn't need to be in with her brothers. Maybe give her a... No, there was no separate beds. That was it. There were double beds. And I thought, she needs to have her own. Uh, so I cancelled. Ca the hotel didn't have separate beds, so I cancelled it. And I booked another hotel. All good. So we get as far as Florida City. And I didn't know. We'd stayed overnight in Florida City. Didn't know my way out of it to the Keys. So I you just don't put in... in Florida Key City. <laughs> yeah, I, it was just an overnight stop. Okay. Put in into this into the sat nav key west got me out of florida city onto the keys that's fine all the way down get about 20 miles outside key west and i said to my wife i said can you give me the address there and i she was putting it into the sat nav put it in does not compute i said you're spelling it right uh, pulled over put it in no and i found that i had booked the hotel was in key lago not Sorry, it was in, yeah, Key Largo, not Key West. So we had driven right. all the way during spring break, four hours, as you can imagine. That is four hours, that, between Key Largo yeah. and Key West, three hours, and yeah. speaking of idling at 70, I've never been so apoplectic that I couldn't speak. The others just got out, they went for a cup of coffee, I just walked up and down, got into a car, and this, now this is the interesting bit for me, turned it around, was driving back up, because we could, because of spring break, we couldn't book or get anywhere else, we couldn't cancel I'd spent a couple of grand on this hotel in, Key, in yeah, Key Largo. So heading back up, got to the hotel, checked in, and saw we had two rooms, and they were massive. Wasn't expecting that. And one of them was going to be empty. There was more than enough in one. There was a suite with plenty of beds for the family. So I rang my brother in, in, in Fort Myers. They're only two hours away from there. And I said, listen, got this extra room if you want to come down, because I'd only seen them for a night. And they were all mm -hmm. saying, you'll stay longer the next time. I said, come on down. They came down. They were two hours later. They were in, in the room. We had the best week on a holiday that I could probably say I'd have ever had. It was fantastic. And all because I screwed up and made a mistake. And then about three years later, I got back to Key West. We did go back there. Fabulous place. But I wouldn't be like that. I don't under I get where you're coming from, but I would be a view of, you know what? If you work hard, just do it. I have a client in, in, in the Keys called Keys Weekly. They're doing, you know, the local rag. And I teach their mm. guys how to sell uh, advertising space in mm. the paper. I've had that client for four or five years now. Great client. And so I basically get a golden ticket to do whatever I want in the, because they know everybody, right? It's a small mm. community and they're the paper. They're like the, they're like the, the was it Hearst, you know, Randolph Hearst of the keys. So everybody mm. knows incredible influence. And, and so I go a lot. I love the keys. I love the fact that it's full of people who went there for a week and never left. Mm. And they're just a little bit drunk. Not many people are very <laughs> drunk. They're just a yeah, little just bit enough. drunk. Just yeah, enough. Yeah, Great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they never leave. Yeah. I've thought Penny of a way, way by the way, for you to get to... I've thought of a way to get to Hawaii. Find a client there, then you have to go. That's a nice idea, mm. too. Yeah. Cool. Tell me, in what you're doing currently, what's giving you the greatest level of satisfaction? I think I am, I had a completely changed, COVID completely changed our business, completely. Mm. The COVID lockdown and repositioning our business as a, with a much bigger reach than it ever had, much more dynamic reach. Mm. So that repositioning of the business, the kind of clients, the kind of work we're doing, 
And then the journey to figure out how to scale our business is the most interesting and satisfying thing right now. Right now, this whole idea of how to create bigger impact, a bigger splash, more impact on the universe. And my own personal kind of development through that journey, how I've got to think about things to create bigger impact. It's almost like to, I've, I'm, I am learning to, to s- slowing down to speed up a little. In what way does that manifest itself? It manifests itself by the hard-earned, the hard-learned lessons around what to say no to. So it's, it's interesting. Who was it? I think it was Steve Jobs who said, no, he didn't. I think actually I said this, but it was built off what Steve Jobs said. Maybe, you know what, you say these things so often you think you, they're your own. Yeah. But it was, you can chart the impact of your life through the things you say yes to. That's the chart. But the impact is super powered by the things you say no to. So each step along the journey is magnified by the things you say no to. So the direction is what you say yes to, but the speed is what you say no to. And the, and the impact you can have is what you say no to. I used to, have a, I used to work on a team with a cool lady called Manda Moss, who said, used to tell me, because I was the guy who said yes to everything. Still am in many ways. I'm learning the power of no. But uh, she used to say to me, when you say no to... Because I was always getting myself into trouble by taking too much on. And she would say, Carlos, the thing... When you say no to somebody, you keep a promise to somebody else. It's a message that's been in my head for 15 years. Manda, if you listen to this, you'll remember saying that to me, maybe. But that's... You keep a promise to somebody else. That's been rolling around in my head for 15 years. But I'm an idiot, Paul. I learn slow. I learn these messages so slowly. For 35 years, I've got my dad's voice in my head saying to me with thick Spanish accent, when you're in a hurry going nowhere, you get nowhere in a hurry. He used to say that to me and I'm telling you all the time. Yeah. Oh, but that these are powerful, profound positions as well. And there's a reason for them. When you understand the context of where your father came from, for example, that makes perfect sense. And what your colleagues Maxine said is actually quite profound. It really is. I love that. I, I really do. I like because I'd be the same. I'd say yes to a lot of things, and then you end up upsetting everybody because you don't do anything right or don't. Oh, do it'll, the it, it, time. Yeah. and it'll hurt my business. It'll hurt yeah, business. Yeah. It hurts clients. It hurts my team. It hurts yeah. my network. Why? Because it's greed and realize that the thing that fuels my instinct to say yes is greed and fear. Is it or is it obligation? Well, maybe obligation is another way of looking at greed as uh, sorry, fear as well. But it's it's I think that nearly all my bad decisions in business are based in greed or fear because I know better. The stuff I do that I know I shouldn't do, but I do it because I'm I'm driven by greed or driven by fear and it is and it's unhelpful and this is a lesson that now 50 years on i'm starting to learn and so what do i mean by go slower to go faster it's not taking on that extra client that looks cool looks interesting nice guys want to help them 
when they're not a fit with what I should be doing. I've got to figure out what my best use, the highest and best use activity and how I can. And yet I can help. Every, I'm vain enough or arrogant enough to believe I can help anybody, but I shouldn't be helping anybody, everybody. Yeah, because you're letting somebody else down when you do that. I get it. Yeah, that's the risk. A couple of quick questions before we finish up, Carlos. Yeah. Uh, desert Island. You're going to be marooned on a desert island. You don't know whether you're ever going to be rescued. You can't. What one thing would you take with you? And it cannot be. Is there internet on this island? (laughs) No, it's a desert island. No. Then I would take a stack of paper and a pen. Okay. And I would write. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Two other questions in a similar vein. Your house is burning down. Your family are safe. Your phone and computer are safe you got time to run back in and rescue one thing. What would it be and why? So I should say, my, my I think I probably would, but more out of obligation or because I think it's what I should do rather than what I want to do. I would go and get that box I've got with all the stuff the kids made me over the years, the yeah, cards yeah. and stuff. Yeah, I would probably go and get that, but I wouldn't want to get that. I would get that because that's what I should get, but I'd be right. torn between that and again, similar answer to the previous question, I have a stack of my journals. I would go and get my journals. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. I can't think of what else I'd get. I don't really yeah. have anything else that's that. I don't have anything, really. Okay. Maybe well, my well, ukulele, because I'm learning how to play the ukulele. Are you? <laughs> and, no, I'm and, not good. I'm okay, learning. But this Is that your birdcage for Hawaii? Because that's your... I wonder. I, no, it's because I tried the guitar and it was too difficult. Is why I've actually got a ukulele. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that would yeah. go well with your. Maybe Hawaii is the best place to go to get lessons. I'm just saying. Could be right. I should make it a ukulele trip. Yeah. I'm really bad though, Paul. Honestly, I'm really bad. <laughs> and, My, and I can I've got see these you. fingers. They're not, yeah. and I can't do the chords. It's hard. Yeah. I could see you with the flowers around your neck as well. Yeah. Anyhow, I'm just planting that seed there. Final question. When yeah. your time on this planet is done and there's a book written about your life, what would you like the title of it to be? I think it would be attempted to the Spike Milligan's answer to this. See, told you I was dead. Oh, no, told you I was sick. <laughs> I was ill. I was <laughs> see, told you I was sick. Yeah. The I think it's, thank goodness Carlos was here. That's like that. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, Carlos, all I can say is I am so grateful you said yes to me. Thank you so much for being my guest on the podcast today. Thank you, Paul. What a treat. What a privilege. Thank you.